On today's episode, we are joined by CEO Scott Yamano. Scott Yamano leads We Feed Raw, which is ultimately owned by parent company AgroLeman. We Feed Raw is a direct-to-consumer brand that offers raw, nutrition-based food for pets. Beforehand, he founded Yoga Club, a direct-to-consumer e-commerce business, and had a very large exit from a previous media company. Scott is an incredible corporate CEO, as well as a successful entrepreneur. Scott, it's great to see you. How are you? Doing great. Getting a lot of work done for Weepy Draws. Exciting project so far. That is fabulous. Are you living in California? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We moved and enrolled the kids in school here. My son's going to a charter school. It's actually a public school, but it's got a charter-style grant where they do project-based learning and a whole bunch of entrepreneurial things. It's more like presentational style projects, working as a group. Can you build an idea into a business? They've got a school of design and one that's more like STEM. The other girls are in a regular school. I've been looking at some of those schools actually out in California and in New York. My kids are both 2E. It stands for twice exceptional. It means that you're gifted, plus you have something else, like one has high-functioning autism and one has ADHD. They're both in the gifted program through our school district, but it's also nice to discover those other resources in the entrepreneurial groups and things like that. Awesome. What's interesting is my wife is an educator by trade. She was a public school teacher in Palos Verdes at a gold ribbon style school and a child psychology major by education. And now she's working for a company called undivided.io, specifically around parents that need additional resources. So many parents, when they get into this, they understand that their kid fits a slightly different mold, but they don't understand how best to be an advocate for them. Now, she has two kids with ADHD as well as a background in education. She could not be any more qualified to do this. And then now to be able to be helping other parents who a lot of times if you're going through it for the first time, it feels completely overwhelming. I would love to connect with her as well. CEO, and he's a former tech entrepreneur, sold his last business, started this up. Now he's on the borderline of trying to understand, is this a platform or is this a high touch point human interaction type service, right? From a SaaS perspective, their multiples are so much better. There's obviously a human element to it as well. So that they have working within the platform are called Navigators. I'm familiar with Parent Navigators. I think Synthesis is doing some cool things and they have those conundrums that are awesome. The guy that started the Astronova School mm. at SpaceX left that program. It's about teaching teamwork, collaboration, et cetera, through this online gaming platform. It's a Zoom room. 15 people go in, you're parsed off to this room. Next 15, you're parsed off to the next room. I did distance learning in a one-on-one -on -one environment. Those options were available to us in Hawaii, but bringing distance learning that did not work for him. You almost had a one-to-one teacher to student situation in order to get him to be successful. We tried distance therapy for one of our kids and all he would do was escape and play online games. And we we're like, okay, this is not working. <laughs> the impetus for me starting this, I think I shared with you, was really having two e kids and they don't want to read about the bear going to the park. We'd rather read about NFTs and AI and all the cool things that are actually more 
relevant to business and to their future that are innovative and interesting? And how do we engage them? How do we help them recognize that they're never too young to change the world? I thought about subscription boxes, which has been a super passion of mine, of course. But the business model is hard from a, a shipping standpoint, right? I said, you know what? Let's start with the community. Let's bring this podcast community together. Interview some really cool people that are doing interesting things across different careers, entrepreneurship, different industries, and really recognize the power of helping parents to prepare the little MBAs in their lives for futures in business. Yeah, it's great. When I was teaching at USC, many of those students had a raw passion for entrepreneurship, but they were engaged in the university at some other level. In the medical school or pre-med, they were also engineering. But I think, especially for the international student, it was difficult for their parents to get their head around the idea that you're going to graduate without the ability to have a job and you're going to land on the line, et cetera. But what's really interesting is there needs to be disruption and passion for entrepreneurship in all these categories. In many ways, doctors have been stuck in a certain mindset. It's study, rinse and repeat, regurgitate information. It's not how everybody operates. But it's how the industry is. Why did someone come in and start breaking up the insurance piece? Why did someone come in medical billing? How can you revolutionize that and make it easier? In many ways, you can book a concert or do all these other things in areas where the technology is moving faster. Then you have to call to book a doctor's appointment. I'll wait for someone to call you back. It, it's interesting that a lot of these kids, they were interested in entrepreneurship and their entrepreneurial ventures that they were pitching to me. I was running a feasibility study. Can your business actually be a business or is it an idea? There's a gap between great ideas and great businesses. Many of them were thinking outside of their uh, area of study. And then a lot of them were saying, hey, I'm thinking in my area of study, but instead of being doctor, lawyer, accountant, engineer, whatever I was going to USC for, I would like to take this idea and revolutionize what's going on in the space. That was a positive sign that the people who were gifted with the passion for entrepreneurship. We're taking these classes where potentially the pathway to college or the sole purpose of entrepreneurship maybe wasn't supported at family level because they weren't really getting a trade or a skill that parent level, especially at the immigrant level, wasn't being a valuable skill. The passion starts so early. We talked to them about what was the first thing that you did? Oh, my parents were doing this thing and we were traveling. I started up this babysitting service. Okay, great. Very cool. I started this and it was off an Excel spreadsheet. I'm like, don't shy away from that. That was great. It's better than notebook. We called them their like lemonade stands. We're a precursor to them understanding and expanding on their interest in entrepreneurship. That element of what's happening at some of the entrepreneurial uh, uh, colleges is super exciting. I love that. As you explored those feasibility studies, what were the things that really made the difference between, hey, this is a great idea and this is a great business? Understanding the metrics, right? We would say things like, okay, let's see how many people will sign up for the service. Let's see how many people will buy this product. I ran a survey and eight out of 10 people said they would like it. Here's a survey. How many people think there's a homeless population problem in downtown LA? Everyone in the class raised their hand. All right, I've got a truck. Everyone pile in. We're going to go do something about it. Immediately, the hands go down. When you ask somebody for a survey, you're getting a rough estimate as to what they think. But when they take out their wallet and vote with their money or their time, then you really have an idea as to you know, where they stand on the topic, buying your product, buying your service, volunteering their time, et cetera. What I really want to push you guys to do is get out there, 
you can work out your cogs and understand the, the metrics there, but will someone actually physically take out their money and buy this? For me, that was the most impactful for the kids. Oh, wow. I built it on a spreadsheet and I showed that I could sell it for 50 bucks and I make it for 10 and look at that 5X markup, et cetera. But it was all the little hidden things that went into the merchant fees, your Shopify page, you're this, you're that. Oh, shipping. I didn't think about shipping. And then it starts to get small. Okay. Is someone even willing to pay 50 bucks for this, right? The actual metrics and figuring out whether those metrics actually went from a spreadsheet to the reality in the real world. That was some of the, the most exciting work for those kids to come to that realization positively or negatively that their businesses have potential or needed fine tuning. I love those tests and learn things where we can learn really fast or fail very fast and be able to adjust and pivot along the way. What are some of the ways in which you have been able to implement that perhaps with your kids or maybe these students to say, hey, let's just put up a landing page. Let's maybe put $50 in Google ads. Let's see what happens. What are some of those fail fast or learn fast opportunities? Yeah, it's about putting it out there in the real world, right? There is no lower barrier than putting up a Shopify site. Exactly what you said, running 50 bucks of Google ads, Facebook ads, et cetera. The kids were at least operating in a space where they understood the very barest minimum of digital marketing and how to execute on some of those things. It was great. A few of them wanted lead generation, said, hey, someone even sign up and say, hey, put me on the waiting list, right? Let's see if that is of interest. A few of them built landing pages with email capture. And then ran some ads and said, hey, can I start developing a listener? That part of it's really exciting. They checked back in. 50 people signed up, 150 people. When we ran Yoga Club, the subscription service for Women's Active, where conceptually, we knew that we wanted to get into some categories that had certain elements that would be easily translatable to the online space. We wanted something that didn't have a real seasonality, right? I'm selling a golf brand or surf stuff. I mean, you're tied to the coast and when people can go. We figured women's active wear yoga, you have very low seasonality. We also looked at the total available market at the time. Obviously, you have a nationwide audience. And a couple of other factors around is it positive unit economics for the customer. Lululemon sells a pair of leggings for 125 bucks. They probably buy it for 10 or 12. So unit economics, there's plenty of margin because they're working on detail and other things to extend value to the customer. We had this whole list but we, we put it online. We bought yogaclub.cc or 10 bucks or whatever. We just tested out. We threw up Shopify page, some stock photos and just running traffic to it. The premise was let's spend $1,500. If we have a complete bomb, we spent $1,500. was three or four guys. Everyone's want to put in 500 bucks or so to see if this works. And then in that instance, what we started doing was playing with price. I said, okay, Let's say 99 bucks, right? And that's better. If they sign up for this package, they get three pieces of clothing for $99. Okay, let's make the adjustment. And then we found a magic price point at $59. We would get a few people coming in and signing up, but we were doing credit card capture without actually charging their card, right? They would come in, they looked like they were filling it out. They weren't filling out a survey. They were checking out. They went through a full checkout, but Stripe has the ability to hold the credit card instead of charging it prior to buying all the products or understanding a warehouse and all that stuff, I said, okay, let's test this out. And then as we massaged the perfect price point at $59, all of a sudden we got about 100 subscribers in about three days. Said, okay, turn it off. We've got product market fit. We know what that is. It's $59. We basically emailed everybody and said, hey, you're part of the beta program. You'll get your first box for free. But that's one of those fail fast opportunities. We're taking 
exactly what we were doing with the students. I said, I'm going through this process at this exact moment. Like, not only am I teaching, but I will literally go step by step with this new venture that I'm launching. So you guys can see it firsthand and the success of the failures and what we're going to do. But it's just interesting that once you find that piece that unlocks acceleration of growth, then you can lean in, right? And then you can say, okay, let's work our way backwards on the cog to understand what a warehousing strategy build our shipping and logistics, things like that. That was one of those areas where if we had gotten through that $1,500, we could have maybe put in another 500 or whatever, but the proof of concept, being able to get an MVP up and live and prove that a customer is willing to buy your product and is applies for $1,500, that's invaluable. Spending a lot more than that to take one class at USC to be able to use that as a test pilot and say, this is what we get. Now, everyone isn't looking for a subscription box, other things. Some things do require capital, capex, expenditure. But in that example, we tried to show them examples where you can fail and or potentially have early signs of success and understanding what product market fit looks like from a price perspective in a digital world where they don't have to build a storefront or have a lean store on the things where the commitment is very low. Fabulous. I know you certainly have a strong background when it comes to digital marketing and e-commerce. You ran your own business before launching Yoga Club, and now you are the CEO of We Feed Raw. So tell me about that path and what's it like to work for yourself than go work for someone else? Even though you're CEO, you still report to a board of directors and it's owned by a private organization. Yeah, when we started Dedicated Media, it was born from the idea that data is going to be the future of marketing, right? My business partner and I were some of the first non-founders hired at MySpace. And it went through a meteoric rise. When I explained it at USC, they'd heard of it, but they didn't really understand it. When we left, it was the number one worldwide property. It was massive. It was on MySpace back in the day. Of course. And and we saw it go through its infancy of literally a viral program of, of all the employees sending it to friends for a $150 gift card to then seeing certain elements of it um, absolutely accelerated the growth. Like the Super Bowl of ads, it was a lot of eyeballs, but without the ability to really quantify what those eyeballs were doing. The business we built was specifically around understanding conversion metrics and triggers to having somebody convert. We sold that in 2000. 14, and went on to start doing other entrepreneurial ventures after that. Worked in the corporate world for a while, even though those things were entrepreneurial style ventures, and then ran our own business. And the instance of dedicated, we didn't take outside capital. We really were our own bosses, right? For better or for worse, either we were going to burn that place down, or we were going to build it to the point where we were able to exit the business. And a lot of great employees, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, but we were able to exit that business, which was great. And set us up as a platform to then say, well, what's the next thing? When we launched Yoga Club, we decided to try to accelerate the business a lot faster using outside capital. And you do end up going from being completely your own boss to then saying, okay, we do need to report in people that we raised the capital from. And or if we continue to do future rounds, we have accountability. That halfway step between working for somebody and working for yourself. I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't really get their head around that concept. When you raise capital, you are now selling a part of your business, which also means you are selling a part of your autonomy. You now will have responsible for metrics, for growth, cash flow, all those things, but then you're now accountable to somebody else. By raising capital, I had that half step of saying, all right, I'm already 
you hold it to shareholders to help them maximize their return here. When we got into the Weepy Gross side, uh, a very great passion-driven business. It's in the better for your dog food space. It's in the, in the raw dog food space. The growth in this market is exceptional. There's a lot of money coming into the space as well. And the private equity group has incredible assets on the analytics side and structure. What they didn't feel like they had internally were entrepreneurs, growth accelerators, growth hackers, and they're hard to find. Typically, they're running their own business, right? Or, or they're relaxing on a beach uh, because they've recently sold their own business. This was an interesting pairing because now you have the capital from a private equity group. It's a $2.5 billion operation that's funding for business. Very powerful. But they're acutely aware that they're great at one area or a couple of areas around analytics and, and finance, but they do provide us a lot of autonomy to then do the entrepreneurial. How can we build and how can we grow? That marriage is actually really great. It's difficult when you've got founders where they both are engineers, they're both accountants, they're both digital marketing people, whatever, without that counterbalance. Marriages, relationships, businesses, et cetera, are very powerful and strong in that area, but it's very difficult to get the very other piece. In this instance, some of the areas where entrepreneurs have a tendency to be weak is let's just test it, let's step out on that limb. And it's great that there is an analytic side that also says, great, here's the structure, here's how we're going to gauge the success, failures, et cetera. I was very upfront. Just see, guys, we're going to do some things and some of them are going to work, some of them are not going to work. And the CEO said, look, Scott, we made a lot of mistakes. But what we ask for is that we learn from those mistakes and each time we take a step forward, the half step back and take two steps forward. They're very good about supporting the entrepreneurial side of what we do. So now it doesn't feel as much like quote unquote working for somebody else, but it's working in partnership and in conjunction and growing the business. They're happy, we're happy, and the marriage is going well. Fabulous. And so when you think about those things, that worked well and those that didn't work well, what are some of the learnings that might apply to young entrepreneurs? I think one of the areas is no matter what you think you know about something, you always let the data tell you at the end. That if you believe that this homepage image is going to be better or this tagline or this subject line or this uh, price point, you do have to let the game play itself out. You Just because so-and-so is a five-point favorite to win the game, doesn't always happen that way. Um, you test and you leave your ego at the door because you aren't right or wrong. When you test it there, it give you the insight, right? You go into it with a preconceived mindset that this is Scott's test versus Nick's test versus Amy's test or whatever. That's the, that's the wrong way to look at it. The win is the win and the team wins when you find there a better solution. Don't guide the test in the way that you think it should work because you want it to be somewhere or end up some way. The opinions don't really matter. It tells you the answers. And in that case, so much more powerful because you get to a, a definitive answer. And whenever you're doing testing, whenever you're doing something you think may have success or failure, define what success and failure looks like ahead of time. This is the KPI we're looking to build. We're looking for better revenue per impression. We're looking to increase AOV. We're looking to increase stick rate of second, third, fourth order. We're looking for lifetime value increases, et cetera. Run it long enough so that you have a reasonable data set that washes out the anomalies, the noise, basically, in the data set. And for each, each test is different, right? It could be a hundred, it could be a thousand, 10,000, whatever needs to be done in order to wash out fluctuations in the noise. 
and be willing to accept that maybe your hypothesis doesn't always come out, but the data tells you what the answer is and be willing to accept that answer and move on and iterate on whatever the test. What are some of the ways in which you are able to either teach your kids or that you've experienced with younger entrepreneurs in terms of being able to teach them how to look at the data? What are those foundational skills and what are the ways that they can gain some of those experiences? For me, and sort of telling somebody what I think, I like to ask questions. And I said, okay, I'm interested in making a quesadilla food truck. Okay, great. What do you think the marketplace looks like for quesadilla food truck? I don't know. Let's do some research and come on back to me. And they say, okay, there's nobody in the LA area doing quesadilla food truck. Okay. That's one data point. And allowing them to do the digging, I can say, hey, gold has been found in this area. And here are the factors that typically lead to higher successes. You start digging, you come back and I pop more questions. For me, asking questions and allowing them to build those answers for themselves is helpful to remove myself from, uh, I'll tell you how to do things. I, don't, I like them to draw those things out. And then when it comes to the actual data element of things, Google Analytics, Excel spreadsheets, they're just some of the old school ways of looking at data still presents itself as GA4 and things like that. Still works great, right? A-B testing things, understanding, hey, okay, let's leave all the other factors the same. On Wednesday of last week, we tried the shrimp quesadillas. Wednesday of this week, we tried the quesadillas. Which data we sell more? Were there other external factors? We tried to isolate all those things. And then I try to ask them to hone in on one definitive thing. If there's one thing you can do in a testing sprint or in understanding data, it's saying, can I isolate all of the other factors so that I know that it's this element? A test will show you people who work out more than 20 minutes a day have a lower instance of heart failure. What if it also told you that people who wear Nikes more often have a lower instance of heart failure? Now, is it a correlation between wearing Nikes and having lower heart failure? Or is it because you're wearing your Nikes to go running and exercise and all these other things? Understand what is the driver behind that answer in the data and um, not just trying to find a correlation that doesn't really exist. Fabulous. Tell me about the importance in staying on top of industry trends. What are the things that you do? What are the things that you are reading? What's on your nightstand right now? And how do you stay ahead of industry data? And what industry data are you focused on? Yeah, for each industry, it is a little different, right? Each group has its own trade journals and things like that, individual blogs, et cetera. For me personally, especially when we were running dedicated, I had what's called Innovation Wednesdays. I had an office portion. I would sit on the floor with the staff for time. And on Wednesdays for about four hours, I would literally close my door and I would actually start going through some of those types of periodicals, journals, et cetera. If I'd read Fast Company, I'd read something in the media space, media posts, et cetera. I realized I was getting a stack on my desk of all these trade magazines and things. And yet I felt like optimizing the business was so much more important that I wasn't taking the time to go through those. I'm competing against everybody else. If I'm not looking at things from a global perspective, if I'm not looking at all of the potential innovations, then I'm one step behind when it comes to that. Slowing down, stopping, and dedicating time. Just a lot of people say mindfulness. That could be meditation. It could be anything. And mindfulness in my entrepreneurial journey means taking a moment, stopping and saying, 
what's happening in the landscape. What I really like to do is I believe everybody in the digital media space is still reading all the digital media blogs. Why shouldn't I be reading the AI blog? Why shouldn't I be reading how people craft a team? How do the Lakers build a championship winning team? How do they look at salaries and that blend between superstars and other things? I start looking at other successful businesses and saying, okay, if everybody in my area is reading the dog food journals and everyone in my area is reading the cold food storage journal, then I really don't have a leg up. But if I'm understanding how AI can help me create correlations or co correlation coefficient between the amount of food the dog eats, where their customers coming from, their activity levels, I'm thinking about things from a completely different perspective. Now, I'm not putting that into a SaaS platform. I'm not using it for finance. But some of those elements that people are putting into Marcom SaaS platforms or the financial analyst guys are doing, why don't I do that with dog food? Do it with uh, fancy football stats or marketing stats or whatever. I like to branch out from what I'm seeing in the industry, the industry journal and saying, can I grab something from someplace else? Also thinking about things innovatively and can I identify it to what I do? Awesome. What's the best book that you've read? What book would you recommend? On the business side, it's like an MBA cliche, but good to great is one of those books that when you really understand what happens at an inflection point in some of these businesses, it's amazing. You can look at, okay, where was Blockbuster at that time? Where was Netflix at that time? They were so different. Where was Kmart at the time versus everybody else? Some of these other businesses that at some point in time had such a strong hold on a marketplace. How did the other players accelerate through that? And how did somebody who seemingly was the gorilla in the space, how did they fall off on each of the inflection points where that kind of the separation happened? That to me, still a reference company that some of the young kids won't recognize as easily, but the lessons are, are invaluable. Understanding what you need to do to massage your business over time because it was successful in 2002, 2012, 2022 doesn't mean it's going to be successful. And understanding constant improvement. Think that the post-mortem on a failed business is one of the best ways to understand they overspent. They got caught up in this or they said, hey, this industry is never going to go this way where somebody else was seeing the internet saying, okay, streaming is going to be the way to go or other things. Good to great for me is a managerial exercise. It's also then an exercise on which components of your business can be that differentiating factor. Don't be scared. There's already somebody in the space. They may be too slow to move the boat, right? And if you can get in and you can be nimble, you can change things. Blockbuster is a perfect example. I mean, the head start they had plus the digital, the footprint that they had of the actual physical stores, plus the brand recognition for them to have not been able to get into the Netflix business or Netflix or HBO or turning into content creators as opposed to content providers change the way you think about the businesses. Those little nuances are really powerful. You say, hey, these two businesses were on this trajectory. They ended up like this. What happened here and here? And how could this stop? Those sets of things resonate with me. And that's a book that, like I said, it's a, it's a bit MBA cliche, but I think it's really great. It is a powerful book. 
as you think about these young entrepreneurs out there who want to follow in your footsteps, certainly there's learning about data, there's asking great questions, there's letting the metrics guide you, there's testing and learning and pivoting and iterating. What about entering the pet food industry? What advice would you give to kids who say, I love pets, I love my cat, my dog. How can I get into this industry too? Yeah, I think it's ripe for disruption. Many of the biggest players have been around for so long and then doing it that way. You've got to think they're not necessarily hiring the best and the brightest. Who wants to go work for a company that's been around for 40, 50 years that's just turning the wheel? Anybody who wants to get into the pet food space or passion space should look for the disruption. Look for what the big players aren't doing. The raw category is still ripe for disruption because when you're thinking about what you do for your children, you go to Whole Foods, you're going to buy non-GMO fruits, vegetables, grass-fed beef. Post-COVID, interest in maintaining your pet's health, you're spending so much more time with them, right? And that light bulb goes off. I'm going to Whole Foods and I'm buying these foods for myself for my children. And I'm still basically feeding my dog the equivalent of a goldfish every day. What, what am I doing? A, look at where the industry has its big gorillas. Look, look at what they're not doing. Uh, look at areas where it might be difficult for them to pivot. D to C obviously presents itself with less barriers than trying to get into the big box stores. As an entrepreneur, roll up a Shopify site, strike merchant processing, and get something rolling quickly. You know those ads about building a Shopify store? It's real. You can turn your cupcake passion or your whatever passion into a business quickly. While you're doing your business and understanding your product market fit. One area that is really important when it comes to any sort of manufacturing of food is understand the regulation. In so many ways, you can sell a pair of yoga pants anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. And Wyoming is no different than California and it's no different than Texas. They may want different styles, different colors, but your ability to sell in each of those states as long as you register is, is the thing. When it comes to certain categories, human food, pet food, nuances, each of the state and what's appropriate in each of the state. Do your proper research to make sure that you're in compliance because you're not going to be a, a, a huge issue. Launch in D2C because that's the way to test out a marketplace very quickly without the challenges of the retail state. Fabulous. Where can our listeners learn more about you and about We Feed Raw? Sure. We Feed Raw, our site has a great blog section where people can see the customized meal plan that we create. The blog is about understanding the raw food category opportunities to help increase the health and wellness of pets. That's wefeedraw.com. I'm on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash Scott Ivano. Fabulous. Scott, you are amazing. Thank you for sharing your insights today. Perfect. No problem. Subscribe to our podcast and social media channels. And as extra credit, if you feel so inclined, give us a thumbs up or share our episode on social media channels at The Little MBA.